Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reverb. I'm joined today by Alex Helberg, my co-host. Alex, how are you today? I'm doing very well, Ben. How about yourself? Good. So today we have the distinct pleasure of being joined by Dr. Anita Manur, Associate Professor of English and Asian American Studies at Miami University, author of Culinary Fictions, Food in South Asian Diasporic Culture, and co-editor of Eating Asian America, a food studies reader. She is currently completing a book titled Intimate Eating, Racialized Spaces and Radical Futures. Anita, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It's good to be here. And the book is actually complete now, so it'll be ah. out in February. So a little fantastic. Yeah. Pending no supply chain issues and paper shortages. Absolutely. Yeah. No, we'll make sure that we we'll make sure that we continue to plug the book <laughs> all the way throughout. Well, Anita, we'd like to get started with just a few questions about your work. You know, your studies of food are so fascinating to us. So we, we wanted to know, you know, how did you come to study food as a lens or a framework for looking at and thinking about literature and culture? Yeah, I wish I had sort of a very, you know, erudite answer to tell you <laughs> that I sort of read these things and came to it care very carefully. But, you know, it was like, I think with a lot of good, good things, it, it was a bit of an accident. I was uh, interested in translation theory and particularly how we move between different languages. I mean, that was really what I was going to write my dissertation on many, many years ago. And I was also, uh, you know, as a post-colonialist interested in the fact that we kind of think about cuisines um, in national terms, only in, in diaspora, right? Um, I, I kept thinking about the fact that you know, we would talk about let's go for an Indian or let's go out to Thai or whatever, but that these categories don't exist in those home countries, right? Like in India, there is no such thing as an Indian restaurant. It's regional, uh, it's vegetarian, it's something else. And uh, so I began sort of interested in tracking this logic with from within post-colonial studies, right? Like how and why do we think about food in national terms? And then from there it became... I would say a little bit about other kinds of formations that sort of signal towards the national, like the family or the home, right? But you also, why, how and why is it important for people in diaspora, people like immigrants, to feel like they know something about Indian food? Like, for in, I'm probably just use the example of Indian food. Um, and you know, I'd also read at the time an article, sure, written it down, an article by my advisor, uh, R. Radhakrishnan, and um, it was in this collection called Orientations. And so he begins in the in the article with this anecdote about going to a Thai restaurant and having sort of, you know, not a less than stellar experience at with the food. And really the sort of the, the logic of it was that it didn't feel authentic, right? Like he and his dining companion knew what authentic Thai, Thai food was, and that wasn't it. And so from there, he sort of has this discussion about authenticity. And um, and that sort of started to ring true for me as as you know someone who was raised Indian but has never lived in India but lived in many other countries, uh, you know, and sort of feeling like we have this idea of something that exists in its true essence that we can recognize, but that we critique authenticity at the same time. And also like as being this diasporic person, I'd always felt like I was kind of a bad translation, right? Like there there is this sort of authentic Indian thing and as a diasporic Indian who spoke you know do, who doesn't even speak Hindi and speaks Kannada which is the language of my family badly it was a bad translation and then so from there I wanted to see 
how can how could this be about food right and how could we bring all of these things together that was about now 21 years ago um my dissertation can now drink i like to say um <laughs> it's 21 years old um and um so it kind of allowed me i think um to use food as, as a lens to think talk about belonging nation and um and i think as i sort of went on with my work um sort of becoming more attuned to how looking at food um, allowed me to ask broader questions about culture at large. And I mean, this is probably a terrible thing for someone who works on food to say, but um, I often say I'm not interested in food per se. I mean, although that's probably a bit of a lie because I, I love to eat and cook, but like I'm actually, I mean, in terms of like studies of food, right? Like uh, I'm not interested in like reading texts or trying to sort of account for what people eat. I'm interested in how we talk about the food, sort of the, the discursive elements of it, the rhetorical power of it, uh, and what they reveal about power and kinship. And so, you know, for me, literature, culture is kind of where I go to think through these issues. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, that's a very long answer to it. No, no, we we really appreciate that. I mean, first and foremost, I just have to put it out there. We we love on this podcast. Uh, we are very much for uh, food metaphors and food puns. So your dissertation being able to drink is one that I had never heard before, but but we'll be using uh, in twenty one years when my <laughs> in my when my dissertation uh, comes of age. Uh, well, so to get into a little bit more of that, uh, the discursive manifestations. I think that was you know that was what brought us to your work in the first place was looking at discourses about food and like how we talk about food and how it uh, reveals things about, you know, as you said, uh, authenticity, about nationhood, about belonging. Um, and in particular, there's this very incisive quote uh, that you've uh, that you have written uh, that food is a part of the everyday language of race in Asian America. Could you talk a little bit more and maybe give some examples of how food becomes the language of race in Asian America specifically? I mean, I think I'm uh, trying to think if there are any puns that I can use. Um, so, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I might talk a little bit about Asian America, but I also might, if it's okay, talk a little bit about context of being Asian in other places. I mean, absolutely. I'm thinking about like, you know, because I grew up, it occasionally comes out in my accent here and there. I grew up in Papua New Guinea and um, Australia. So uh, that my primary experience with being a mi minority child was around other Australians. Um, but so, I mean, I think like a lot of the stuff about the language of race in Asian America, I think is what you said about and food becoming a part of that. Um, sometimes it's anchored in childhood, but at a very basic level, I think that many of the slurs that are often used um, racial slurs um, are, are food ones, right? Sometimes they come from within people's communities. Sometimes they're from outside. I think about like terms like, I mean, even outside of Asian America, right? Think of terms like Oreo, right? Um, to describe someone who's black on the outside. Why don't, why am I doing air quotes? You can't see me. Um, black <laughs> on the outside, white on the inside. Um, and then in Asia, you know, Asian Americans have the term like banana or coconut, right? And you can kind of like see what that means. Um, and that, that sort of suggests a kind of like performance, right? That one has to do that if you have a certain kind of behavior, certain kind of behaviors or attitudes or preferences, they're coded as white and somehow, you know, you're really white on the inside, but that's not in a good way. But then we also have other terms, right? Like um, beaner or kraut, right? That have been used historically for Germans and, and Mexicans. Um, I mentioned I grew up in Papua New Guinea, and I think one of the 
um, terms that I grew up with. And I think this is how I understood about racism. Um, and I wrote about it a, a few few months ago um, <clears throat> uh, for NBC's um, think, I think it was called. Um, and the racist slur that I grew up with was being called a curry muncher. And that's a very uh, Australian British thing. And it's used for um, South Asians. And, you know, I mean, as a kid, I sort of was very precocious. I mean, shocking that an academic was a precocious child. Um, but I would say, well, no, we don't really eat curry. That's not a thing that's, you know, invented. Um, we have other things that we eat, but yet that term stung, right? And so very early on, I realized that food was a thing that could, I, I think what's harmful about it as a child is that you don't, there are things that I just loved to eat, right? Whatever they were, Indian food, things that my mom made. My mom was a very good cook. And then finding out that people used it as a point of ridicule for you um, in schools and um, primarily the white children that I grew up with. And so then that, that became a way of experiencing racism, right? Even if people weren't like discriminating against you or in, in very active ways, right? These were microaggressions. We didn't have the term microaggression then, but that's what it was but it was very visceral. And I think food is very visceral. There's not always an accounting for why you like what you do, but when someone uses that and turns it against you, against your sort of sense of identity and your sense of racial belonging, it then becomes a way to make you feel like you don't belong. And then I think the sort of tragedy of it is that sometimes it makes kids especially resent their own foods and not want to eat them. So, so I think that that happens in, in subtle ways. That's one way that it happens. Um, and I think, um, I think I think about this more and more because partly I've been teaching more young adult and children's literature recently. Uh, and so I'm curious about how children learn about racism, um, how they learn about racial shame and racial pride. And often it's through food. Yeah, I think that's uh, interesting in, in some of the ways in which food is used as a signifier to, to speak of different cultures and peoples. And one thing that came up in your work that I'd like to explore a little bit is just notions around ideas of excessiveness, right? So the ways in which food can be something that's coded or can bring up um, ideas that are in contradistinction or in contrast to other types of taste, right? And I think that food becomes a place where so much aesthetic judgment is happening. So I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about the ways in which excessiveness or invocations of excessiveness in food can racialize bodies uh, through things like the non-visual senses, right? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, to kind of just stay with the, the, the school example, um, and I really hope my mother is not listening, because she's always like, why do you have to tell this story every single time? <laughs> um, but, you know, I think about like, when when I started feeling embarrassed about my foods at school, I asked my mom for tuna fish sandwiches. And I thought I was going to get like white mayonnaise, you know, tuna salad. But then my mom was like, had no idea what that was. And so she made tuna fish sandwiches one day and she made, she made them with um, like chilies and onions and, and turmeric. So they were these, it was really yummy. And it's still like my favorite, like comfort food, but it was so bright yellow and so pungent. And I remember like kids saying something to the effect of like, oh my God, your food is too much. Like, you know, basically I was trying to assimilate, but I got it wrong. And it started making me think about the ways that um, that language of, you know, your food is too much, like it's too spicy, it's too pungent, it's too oily, gets 
activated to describe certain kinds of, of food in different Indian restaurants, right? So, uh, and so this is also an element of class, right? So like we've, I mean, we're in a moment when like we can see very fancy Indian restaurants right now. And the way that they're celebrated is often because they sort of, they sort of balance the foods, right? And all of these, these terms are so loaded. Um, and I kept thinking about how, again, this feels like a kind of a bit of a microaggression, right? Rather than saying flat out that the food is unpalatable, we sort of access the languages of excessiveness, like, um, and, and, you know, I mean, I know a lot of my examples are anecdotal, but I think that that's often for me, that can become a starting point to then look at the cultural elements in the text. Um, you know, I think about like, you know, right now I live in an apartment building and um, what I like is that there are, when I walk in the hallways that there's the smell of so many different kinds of food and that people will be really positive about it. And like, oh, that's, they're like, oh, you're the one who has the food that smells really good. But I think of like a different moment, right? Where, um, you know, I, I, you know, I've had landlords and I've also heard anecdotally stories about this where people will say things like, I mean, one, one landlord of mine actually wrote to me after I moved out and said, um, you know, I really appreciate how much you use the kitchen, but could you come and clean it up a bit more? And I was like, dude, I moved out. And I was like, uh, and I knew what he meant. And he's like, well, you know, all of those lovely Indian foods you made, it's left a residue. And I was like, well, you know, and so it was clearly like the smell of Indianness or of, of otherness was going to, in his view, compromise the ability to rent out that apartment. And I was reminded of how then smell gets attached to class um, and race and um, and it's sort of, you know, anytime that it deviates from the norm, it's seen as, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's excessive, right? It doesn't, it gets, I mean, that's almost like, what's actually being said is that your food smells of, is going to compromise my ability to rent this apartment out. And yet there are certain foods that are considered positive, right? Like a lot of times realtors will say things like, you know, try to, when you're trying to sell your house, like put, put in an apple and a cinnamon and cinnamon in the oven. And so it smells like home. And so, you know, but then, you know, you're, they're certainly not going to say, well, why don't you cook up a nice, you know, uh, chicken, you know, curry and that'll smell like home. Right. So to me that partly that's, so I, I started paying attention to, to where that language of, of excessiveness kind of played in and if it mapped onto people's bodies and why is it that people, you know, often try to sort of, you know, deodorize the smell of otherness and, and often that's food. I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, I appreciate you bringing in the example of, uh, of housing uh, as it applies to things like smells and other kinds of non-visual senses uh, pertaining to food. That's, I mean, that is literally an experience that I've had as well when, you know, I'm going to look for apartments uh, and, you know, maybe people that I'm touring it with or, you know, the landlords will explicitly say like, yeah, you know, I know that there's a little bit of a smell in the hallway and it's like clearly, you know, it, it smells, you know, like a like a curry or something. And it's like, 
that smells like home cooking. That is cool. That that's a good sign that people here are like, you know, that they're using their kitchens and that they are functional. Like for me, that's what I care more about is like, does the kitchen work? Cause I am, you know, I'm big into cooking as well. Um, and yeah, I love having hallways that smell like home cooked meals like that just in general is, is always a good sign. Um, but your, what, what your, uh, what your answer, uh, also reminded me of was, uh, are you familiar with the, uh, with the Washington Post? Uh, food columnist Gene Weingarten and his controversy over uh, <laughs> over saying that uh, quote uh, Indian curries uh, quote tastes like something that could knock a vulture off a meat wagon uh, and then also claiming uh, rather extraordinarily that Indian food is based entirely on one spice um, yeah which was baffling I don't know I kind of wanted to get your take on that as well oh you know I kind of yeah you know I said I kind of alluded to 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 writing that article about my childhood right about the curry muncher thing and how I started to learn to hate curry um and it was in in response to that article that Gene Weingarten had written um I was asked to like write a response and I said you know for me it's hard to uh think about this and for it not to feel personal um so yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, so many other people have have said interesting things about it. But for me, again, it was sort of what was fascinating about it is that it wasn't new. There's always a version of this that happens every few months. Um, someone says something then that denigrates people's food, are shocked that Asian Americans will speak up against it. And then there's an apology issued. And then something else happens. And, but for me, you know, it's sort of fascinating that curry is this colonial invention. And yet, here we are, you know, hundreds of years later, still trying to disarticulate that link to our bodies, you know, um, and say, no, in fact, it's not one thing. It is a shorthand that was invented by colonialism. And um, we call our foods other things. Um, and that's why the term curry muncher really felt, that's why I ended up writing about the term curry muncher, right? Like, like, how dare you use a term that was invented by colonialism to then, you know, be racist against me. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I have thoughts. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. And that, that brings us to, I guess, another question that came up while reading your work. And it goes back to some of your comments you made earlier around questions of, of authenticity and what that means and also how coloniality of these other uh, ways in which power is mediated often act as an ideological filter. And I think one site where they see that, uh, to quote from your work, culinary fictions, you state, uh, whatever dubious origins of the dish might be, one thing is certain. The chicken tikka masala debate has ceased to be, if it ever was, exclusively about food. The chicken tikka masala debate is as much, if not more, about anxieties and cultural admixtures, race and ethnicity, as it is about accurately chronicling the etymology for a dish comprised of tandoori-style meat drenched in masala sauce, something that seems so quintessentially British that British persons may claim, but to know good Indian food better than Indians, for instance. So I was curious if you could just uh, talk through this debate with us and uh, what it helps us to understand about the, the rhetorical functioning of food, the logics of coloniality and how they come to bear in, in these moments. You know, I think I was interested in, in the debate um, because 
it sort of made me realize, I mean, how much we have to think about a lot of foods in a colonial context and in that sort of politicized context, right? That even the most innocuous dishes often have complex histories that get erased. And it's not always malicious, right? But often over time, it gets, um, they get erased. I mean, I think about the fact that, you know, if you go to, people will sort of say, you know, if you go to England, the best food is Indian food, or that you can find chicken tikka masala at any pub. And it's, it's, you know, it's quintessentially British. And it's, so I was interested in like, well, how did that come to be? What kinds of erasures had to take place for that to emerge? And does acceptance of that food necessarily translate to an acceptance of of um, bodies. Um, but again, I think, you know, I mean, food again is, is a kind of language, right? I mean, you know, as people, as someone who works in literary studies and certainly, you know, you know folks who are interested in rhetoric, right? We can kind of think about the kinds of literacies that, that food promotes and it's always evolving, right? And I don't think we do any service by, to, um, to food or, or debates around food by insisting on authenticity and purity. I mean, I think if we all only ate, you know, you know, we'd probably, you know, people would be eating unseasoned turkey legs if we didn't think about foods mixing and creating new kinds of, you know, languages, new dishes. But I think it's important. And I think a lot of the times when the debates come up, I think about sort of the kanji debate that happened a few months ago where someone was saying her name was ironically Karen, claiming that she had, <laughs> was improving on um, kanji, is that she was not the, the sort of the the irritation and, and sort of feelings of anger um, that were coming more often because she was not honoring where the foods come from or accessing the histories of like, how did kanji come to America? Like, you know, what was the history of the immigrants who had to like fight to, you know, come and find a place in the US? Um, you know, so I think when we think about things entering our worldviews, like it's important to think about what's left out um, as well. Um, and I don't know if this is like a debate, but uh, one of the things that's interested me is like how foods have kind of, kind of sometimes lose their histories, right? That we don't even know like why certain things are, are where they come from. And I was reading um, some, I guess one doesn't really read Instagram, one scrolls through Instagram, <laughs> but I saw this thing on Instagram yesterday about something called country chicken or captain's chicken or something I forget the name of it exactly and I had seen it referred to in the past but I decided to kind of look into it and it turns out that it's this dish that's from the south um, that and I was wondering why is there curry powder and why does this sort of very quintessentially southern dish sound so Indian and so I kind of did the, the, I went into a rabbit hole and so it turns out that this re recipe that feels very bizarrely Indian and also very Southern sort of originated in India and um, maybe um, from British officers who would like sort of were doing sort of the sea routes through through and landing in ports like Savannah. Um, so I think one, one thing I read said that one theory was that uh, like a 19th century British sea captain, maybe, um, who was working for the East India Company, working in the spice trade, like introduced it to the US South via Savannah, right? Um, and so I think that could be like the next interesting thing. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I feel like people may have written more about it, um, but um, certainly not in the circles I move in um, very much. 
but I also think about like other um, kinds of erasures. Um, uh, I try to forget the name of the show, but Jessica Harris had this, um, has her book, this is so useless. I can remember neither the book nor the title of the Netflix series, but um, I mean, she talks at length about how much of, you know, American cuisine has erased Black people and African-American, you know, the African-American food and what is brought to us. And one example that I remember thinking about that she discusses is, is of James Hemings, who is actually Sally Hemings's older brother, right? Um, and he was Thomas Jefferson's slave um, chef, right? His, I mean, an enslaved chef. And he, and so, um, um, James Hemings had actually traveled to France in the 1780s, right? I don't know if you know this, this is, I thought this was fascinating and was trained to learn how to cook French food um, at very high levels. And that was really unusual for the time. This is all in Jessica Harris's book. And then he returns to the US and this is when he introduces macaroni and cheese, and, uh, mac and cheese, right? And ice cream and French fries to America, right? This is one of the earliest instances of that. And you know, it's like, A, it's how Sally Hemings is older brother, but B also like, this is sort of such quintessential American food, but we don't know that history, right? Uh, I didn't know that history, you know? I, I, I learned it by teaching a book to one of my classes and I was like, wow, you know? Um, so yeah, so these kinds of erasures that happen are, are sort of interesting to me. Um, I don't think I really answered the rhetorical part of it. But. No, no, that's totally fine. I mean, I, I mean, the chicken tikka masala debates, you know, as being this kind of like, you know, British invention or an invention of colonialism, uh, you know, per se, uh, is kind of just one inflection point in, you know, the many others that you've given a sort of reference to. I did not know about Country Captain Chicken before, uh, but I, yeah, yep, but I looked it up really quickly, uh, and from the magazine Southern Living, just to, uh, if we can do an on-the-spot rhetorical analysis here, uh, it, it says here, this gorgeous chicken dish is one of those regional classics that many natives either grew up eating all all the time or have never heard of before but no one should miss out it originated in the low country that sunny area around charleston and savannah known for deep ports salt marshes and excellent cuisine um so literally it's i mean it's this southern living is situating it specifically in the american south um which yeah which in itself is fascinating and the fact that they use you know a term like you know it's a regional classic that uh many natives grew up eating like fascinating fascinating yeah, I think I started thinking of low country and then thinking was this, you know, an erasure of and then see, thinking about how the term Indian might have been present in that history and then realizing, oh, no, it's actually like my kind of Indian, not Native Americans that are being talked about. And that made more right. sense given the ingredients. Right. Um, yeah. And so how much. Um, yeah, I think I I think I might have seen that Southern Living um, article as well, but it, it makes it seem like a very homely dish that's like comfort food for, for people in, 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 in that area of, of the South, but there's a complete erasure of how it got there. And so it's kind of similar in that sense to chicken tikka masala, right? It's just like beloved food that people have their own version of, you know, in Britain, every, you know, Jamie Oliver has a version, um, you know, the, every pub has its version, but like, how, how did it get there, you know, is, is, is sort of always what's fascinating to me. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, we're, we're starting to touch on, you know, notions of place and space and how those, you know, kind of come to bear in uh, discourses and cultural uh, texts about food as well. Um, and so I think we wanted to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, about what led you to your, uh, to your current work now as well. Um, from your, uh, you had an essay in Readings in the South uh, Asian American Kitchen, uh, where you talk about the kitchen as being this kind of critical uh, homosocial space. Space that allows for articulations of same-sex intimacy to emerge uh, through and against the structures of regimented heteronormativity. Um, and talking about culinary narratives as these kind of sites for examining queer potentialities, uh, promises of desire, uh, because, you know, food preparation in a domestic space is heavily uh, invested in the ideologies of heteronormativity. So, I mean, we kind of wanted to talk to you about what you've learned about food and foodways from investigating these sort of intimate spaces like the kitchen. What is this? Uh, what does this reveal to us about uh, some of the other concepts that you've been talking with us about thus far? Yeah. Um, and I think that, 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 gosh, that's, that essay, um, I think was what initially then I decided I wanted to write more and that's where I ended up, you know, the, the book that's coming out intimate eating is, it's not just about queer desire, but about different kinds of non-normative intimacies that are brokered through food. And I think sort of, for me, like a lot of it has to do with sort of very early memories of being in the kitchen, right. Both in, um, at home with my mom, but also when we would go to India, um, and, um, and I was always fascinated because there was always in the back of my mind, I would always remember how people would be like, oh, Indian women always have to cook food for their husbands. It's so, you know, it's such a patriarchal society, et cetera. But then I would go into the kitchens and I was fascinated by the fact that this, these were vibrant spaces, right? All, basically all the, the women, all the aunties would gather and sit there and like take their time with cooking because that was their time to gossip and chat and, you know, cut things, you know, both vegetables and, and people, you know, like um, lots of different kinds of saltiness would emerge both in the food <laughs> and, and, and in the rhetoric. Um, Beautiful, but it was thank you. <laughs> I tried to be funny, I'm not always successful. Um, but, you know, like I was really fascinated by sort of the way that, I mean, I didn't, again, have a language for it, but looking back, I was like, this was kind of an interesting homosocial space, right? Where women would cook with women um, and, and sort of like girls would learn about different ways of being um, or, you know, and sometimes there would be boys, you know, and I mean, I don't remember all of that, but, but I also think about, you know, um, how kitchens are kind of intimate spaces, right? Um, and, you know, for me, I mean, I don't, I don't just cook with anybody, right? You have to matter for me to let me into your kitchen. And so the person I kind of have cooked with the most is my mother. Um, and that, you know, relationship has evolved. You know, I think from the early days, it was like, oh, kind of teaching me kind of, I mean, in some ways it is kind of a rhetorical thing, right? Because it's like, how do you sort of, or like a, just a kind of discursive practice, like how do you learn what is the repertoire of Indian food? And so she would teach me that. And it wasn't like Indian restaurant food. It was like home cooking, right? And so, you know, I have like, I should have, well, not that you can see it. I have like the cookbook where she wrote down all of her recipes um, and then, um, well, she didn't actually write them down, but she, the, what I wrote down her recipes and tried to translate them into something that I could approximate when I even ended up, you know, moving out because it was always like a pinch of this, a little of that, you know, I'm like that doesn't help. I need like exact measures, you know? And then I think about like what else happens, right? When you're cooking and it's 
talking about life and and other kinds of things and you know I mean I think I think about this during the pandemic a lot right because because of the restrictions on travel I I haven't seen my mother in in more than two years and so I was thinking like what are the things like I can't go to India right now because I'm not an Indian citizen but I think the restrictions have been lifted but whatever but like you know like what do I miss it's those kinds of embodied practices of cooking with her or just you know, sitting in the kitchen with her and chopping vegetables and things like that. But I mean, I think because, you know, there's so much tactileness to cooking and it accesses senses, there's something really important about the kinds of intimacies that cooking can do because you are in proximity to other people and you can kind of express, and that's why for me, it's important that I cook with people that I care about. But, and, and, but this is a very different example, but I think about like how hard it was to form meaningful relationships with students when they were all on Zoom, right? Especially like in the spring semester of 2021, which was like the third semester, right, of having done that. And I was teaching a capstone on food. And so it's a 15-person class. And, you know, it's, it's that sort of moment, right, where, where you're at the end of your education and you're kind of like having a small, intimate kind of gathering. And yet what was, and that sort of possibility of intimacy it was completely gone the possibility of learning so I was like well this class is on food what can I do given that we're on zoom and I was like why don't I do cooking classes because I apparently think I'm Padma Lakshmi and (laughs) I want to be her um but no kidding so but I was like okay this is this could be an important kind of way that we we bond because we've never seen each other I still haven't seen some of these students in in real life so I just we did cooking classes related to the units we were studying once a month and it was kind of a way for me to feel connected to them right I couldn't I would never ordinarily like invite my students over to my house like that's just too weird but I would certainly during um, the pandemic I was like well you are like you can see me in my living room <laughs> um, and so let's let's actually think about the foods we're talking about and let's work on using this as a language to build a different kind of intimacy and work with what we have during the pandemic. Um, you know, because the kitchen is my space, it is intimate. Um, and so I think for me to cook with my students during COVID, even through, and maybe because it was through Zoom, was sort of just for me a small way to say that you are a part of my world, right? Um, we are a part of each other's worlds for a very brief time. Um, but so, um, I kind of would put that in the realm of, of kind of like an intimacy, um, a non-normative kind of intimacy that um, was enabled by necessity. Um, and so and so that's what I'm interested in. I think the kitchen can sure, certainly be a place where, you know, families cook for their children and there's nothing wrong with that. And um, But for me, it was interesting to think about the different kinds of things that can happen. What happens in those conversations with the aunties where they might not have the best marriages, but then that becomes a space for them to critique patriarchy. Um, For me and my mom to talk about, you know, um, things that we didn't want my dad to hear. (laughs) Um, Or, you know, for for my students and me to kind of get to know each other on a different level, so kind of a rambly answer to a <laughs> simple question. No, that's so brilliant. I just wanted to insert something real quick just because I, I, I appreciated so much you talking about 
COVID and the way that, you know, the kitchen, I think, you know, at least for me, and I know for Ben too, because Ben and I actually cook together a few times, <laughs> just a uh, full disclosure, we do hang out outside of the podcast. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely does forge a kind of like almost, you know, familial intimacy, <laughs> even if you're doing it with, you know, your colleagues or co-hosts of your podcast, right? That became, uh, at least for me, it was definitely a very important, uh, you know, way of keeping that sense of intimacy alive uh, and, you know, sociality in a time where that felt very scarce. Yeah, and I think definitely the sociality is the part of it that I think we were missing so much, right? Um, and so, yeah, you sort of look to combine that intimacy and sociality together. Uh, yeah, I'm curious, too. So some of the ways in which intimacy arises in what is a seemingly more intimate space like the kitchen but I'm wondering, too, if we could think a little bit about those more public spaces, right? So where there is uh, what you've termed, right, an intimate eating public that can emerge in these spaces and how this might be or might function as a space for radical alternatives to even xenophobic discourses about nation uh, in contrast to these other media projections of different nations, of different spaces. So I was wondering if you could think a little bit with us about those sites where, where food is being consumed and what kinds of alternatives in that public space can be structured to create that type of intimate eating public. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that really, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, books aren't linear when you write them. And so I mean, even though like this is maybe, I ended up writing about this very question for the third or fourth chapter of my book, I forget which, but it might've been the, one of the first ones that I was thinking about. And I was, again, interested in like, what, what, quiz, what restaurants um, can use national monikers, right? Like India, et cetera. Like, why don't we have as many Pakistani restaurants? And, you know, we know that there's a complex, I mean, unless there are certain um, immigrant enclaves, or why do we not have Bangladeshi restaurants? They don't have, they don't translate in the US, but there's also an element of xenophobia with certain things like Pakistan, right? Where um, people won't go, but India is considered much more um, approachable. Um, so I started looking at like, well, what are the other kinds of cuisines that we don't have like names for, but the owners might be from those countries. Like where are the Iraqi restaurants? Where are the Syrian restaurants? And they often are under the sort of moniker, Middle Eastern, right? Or Lebanese, and they're not even all Lebanese restaurants, right? If you talk to, I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, so I have no business talking about this, but um, but then I got interested, actually this, you, you, probably, you might even know about this um, in Pittsburgh, right? So Conflict Kitchen, um, which no longer exists, but it was an art project initially, but actually a restaurant. And I was fascinated that their basic, that A, that they had a restaurant that had a mission statement, which was kind of amazing and glorious, but that their whole, sort of object object or objective was to serve up food from countries that the US was in conflict with, right? And so they would have different iterations, Venezuela and Cuba and um, so on. Um, and, and then for people to kind of think about what does that mean? And so that food becomes not the end point, right? Because a lot of times, you know, you'll see things, you know, like if we could only sit together and have a meal together 
racism would go away, right? And I think it's a very nice idea, but it's very Pollyannish, right? Like you're not, like racism isn't gonna go away because you sit down and eat kibbeh together, you know? Like you actually have to talk about difficult things, but people often say like, we don't discuss, you know, politics in polite company, but you know, maybe that's actually where transformation happens and we're allowing xenophobia to persist by not bringing politics up. And so I've been interested in these kind of art projects like um, conflict. I mean, I guess I'm calling them art projects because the people who started it were, artists, John Waleski, uh, no, Don Waleski and, oh my God, John Rubin, yeah. And, um, and that they wanted food to sort of initiate, right? Dialogue and to incite people to change. I'm not getting the exact quotation, right? Um, and so then, you know, I mean, one of the things that I did was, um, was I was fascinated, like one of the things that they did was a public project where they had a North Korean cooking lesson. So it was like on Skype in 2013. And of course, none of us understood what that meant because none of us knew what Zoom was, right? Um, but we all cooked together and then we talked about the food and we talked about politics. And I thought it was, that was a really great way to use food to actually think about, you know, radical possibilities of coming together. And another person who does work like this is uh, Michael Rakowitz, he has a project art installation called Enemy Kitchen um, and basically took an old like military van and turned it into a food truck, but um, and uh, basically serves Iraqi food and will ask people like, how do they feel about eating Iraqi food? I mean, a lot of this was like, on, was ongoing from like, you know, the time of the Iraq war. And so I think there's a way that these kinds of um, installations, um, experiments have kind of really allowed people to think about um, and use, and that the, that the fact that, that I think the important thing is that these are in public spaces, right? These aren't private conversations within people's homes. They're uh, public spaces, public, you know, and um, they yet, and they allow people who would not ordinarily, you know, eat a meal together to kind of think through differences and maybe not come to a resolution, but we don't need resolution, right? We just, I think, need dialogue. And that's, I think, part of what these projects were doing, food to sort of, you know, initiate dialogue and insight change. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and we're so glad that you brought up Conflict Kitchen. We we were going to go there if you didn't. Uh, did you get a chance to eat there when it was when it was still open? I went there to, though, yeah, I was there in the uh, early days in the first location. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I never yeah. made it to the second one, but yeah. Yeah. The one, the one that I was aware of, cause I came to Pittsburgh in 2014. This was when it was up in Shenley Plaza, right? Adjacent to the university of Pittsburgh, or I guess right between UPIT and Carnegie Mellon. Um, and yeah, I was I was there during the era where they started serving Palestinian cuisine and they started getting death threats uh, for uh, for basically, you know, naming Palestine as, you know, even even mentioning that there was perhaps even a semblance of a conflict between the U.S. and Palestine was considered, you know, by many to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, a kind of discursive violence, I guess. Uh, so <laughs> that in itself is fascinating. But but I'm. I'm I'm so fascinated and curious to read that chapter of your book just because of the way that, you know, these kinds of, uh, you know, I do think it's fair to call them art installations, but also sites for dialogue. Um, and, you know, yeah, they were very, they were very intentionally set up to be such, right? Like they. I mean, I think that they, they kind of, I mean, you know, it's hard to access this, this archive because it was all deleted. Um, 
but it's a kind of culinary diplomacy. And I was thinking, and what I mean that the archive was deleted was before um, when uh, before the Trump era, there was a whole, um, there was actually in the White House, a whole program of culinary diplomacy that Hillary Clinton had started. And it was about like, whenever, you know, heads of state or whatever would visit that they would use, they would try to like provide food and use food as uh, from, from whichever country the person was coming from and use that as an occasion for dialogue. So they would sort of consider that culinary diplomacy. And yet I was like, that's a very literal version of it. It's hard to find that because it was it was basically shut down um, in 2016, right? Um, maybe it'll come back, I don't know. Um, but then that's at one level, but this, what ha what is happening at these smaller levels, I think is is also incredibly powerful because it's not, you know, heads of state and, you know, diplomats who are sort of the ones who are thinking about these issues, but everyday folks. And that's also, I think, where the possibility for radical change can occur. Yeah, absolutely. Um, more so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would, I would argue such. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, to take things in a little bit of a different direction and talk about a different kind of uh, kind of eating public, a mediated uh, mass mediated eating public, uh, we were we were really struck uh, that another uh, uh, a chapter of your book, at least from what we could see on the Duke University Press website, is about uh, the Great British Bake Off uh, as a, a show that many Americans uh, will probably uh, see, you know, as a kind of uh, comfort food for <laughs> for troubling times, right? Uh, especially when put in contradistinct with other kinds of reality television and especially food, you know, food competitions writ large. Um, but you're taking uh, a little bit more of a critical perspective on how the representations of racialized South Asian and brown bodies become visible in this kind of mediated eating public. So, uh, so could you talk a little bit more about how Great British Bake Off kind of functions as an eating public and how are discourses of race, uh, race and marginalized subjects brought to bear in that? So this is the problem with like the description. You don't always end up doing what you say you're gonna do, but I still have like lots of thoughts about the Bake Off and without, although I guess by the time this is edited, it, it won't be a spoiler, but you know, this current season has um, um, two uh, South Asians in the finale, which is kind of exciting. It's not the first time that it's happened, um, but I agree. It is definitely comfort food for Americans. And, you know, I mean, in some ways, like, you know, you know, yeah, Americans have kind of always loved a kind of like whitewashed and mild version of England, right? And it's Anglophilia, like we love, um, we, well, I don't include myself in part of this public, but, you know, I mean, people love the monarchy, but in all the pomp and circumstance, but don't really have any idea about like colonialism and, um, but they like, you know, to watch the, the royal wedding, you know, and I think, the Great British Bake Off is, is sort of another version of this, right? Of this Anglophilia. Um, also, I mean, I think what's charming about the Great British Bake Off is that it doesn't have that competitiveness, right? That American shows have. Like, I mean, literally these people are competing for a plate. There's no money. Like this seems so anti-capitalist, right? Like that I think that becomes both the mode of, moment of fascination for Americans and also just like, this could never work in America, right? But I think what I was interested in and, and I was, I'm always, I'm still like curious about how this translates um, is that, you know, when, when I started watching it, and I think when it really became popular is that there's sort of universe, right, that's created in this white tent. And it's sort of very much um, 
sort of feels, at least for the British public, and I think even for some of the contestants, because I've read some interviews with them, of the sort of panacea against what, you know, is the xenophobia that's fueling Brexit, right? Uh, and so inside this white tent, you know, everyone belongs, everyone's spices and histories um, of why they use certain things in their cooking is welcome. Um, sometimes, I mean, some of the hosts are like a little like, skeptical like I was watching one and she's like I don't know about matcha like it's awfully strong and I was like oh here we go again with the rhetoric of excessiveness and and you know the very mild-mannered German is like no no let me tell you how to you know make matcha like work you have to heat it to 80 degrees and then it loses its grassy flavor sorry I'm doing a very bad version of Jürgen um but you know so but everyone's kind of welcome and this is sort of this kinder sort of more loving reality of what Britain can be and and it, and, and some of the contestants have said this um Chetna Muffin he's one of the contestants um, says that she really liked what the Bake Off offered in the white tent and it was so contra contrary to what was happening in the country um, and I think it's been especially compelling during the pandemic that people are kind to each other because I mean so many people are so right now hideous to each other right and do not care about other people right um, and yet in this show people will help each other right like someone's bake is failing and they'll help them and like that's their competition but they actually are like outwardly projected and I think there's something compelling about this um for Britons, because it offers this vision of the country that's utopic, but also aspirational, but also a reminder of what could be. But I think, and I keep trying to think about what is appealing to this about this to Americans. And I wonder if, like, you know, really, I think when it kind of started to take off was during the Trump years, right? And I mean, I feel like it's a little bit of this sort of salve against, you know, everything awful and to kind of imagine a place where people are kind and, you know, like, and you know instead of a fence you know and a big border wall and cages where we put children like people are like in this tent and cooking together right people who don't have any reason to be invested in other people's success and I think I don't want to get into a whole thing about baking and why baking is popular or like this and then you know then it, you know it turns into like sourdough and I'm not interested in sourdough um <laughs> And I don't think the show is perfect, but I think it offers these moments, right? And that's what I've really been fascinated about is that what are those fleeting moments of possibility that occur? Um, and, you know, I mean, there are times, and as I mentioned, you know, there's sort of like, you know, like some of the hosts will sort of have upturned noses, like too much cardamom, too much matcha. Um, and I kind of wish to, and, I, and so I guess one of my critiques, I have sort of shifted in my thinking about it over time. Um, one of the, things that I do wish that the history did, the show did more, I'm sorry, was to address kind of the history, uh, food history and colonialism. So like in the early seasons, um, if you've watched every single episode of it, like I have, um, they would have these historical asides. So they'd be like, okay, we're making a Victoria sponge. So let's talk about what that is. Or we're making a Bakewell tart. So we'll go to the town of Bakewell and talk about this. And then I was like, oh, they're going to do an episode on sugar. And now sugar is colonial. And that never happened. And so like there are these missed opportunities, right? So um, and so and as the show has progressed, they've kind of like in, you know, widened, and this is sort of part of my critique, they're, they've kind of widened the scope of the kinds of bakes that they do, the kinds of challenges. So they had like dairy week or they had like Japanese week but then they don't really talk about like what are the I mean I don't know if any show can do it but there is an opportunity the show had done that in the past and yet you know those those kinds of moments of 
you know, how to sugar kind of, you know, <laughs> I want the Stuart Hall piece in there, you know, like, you know, that sugar like comes from the colonies and tea grows in, in, in India, but you know, I mean, the show can't be everything, but I think it does, um, at least to Americans, I think it offers the idea, assuming, again, I, I would need to do more audience research and as a, as a you know, lit, cultural studies person. I don't like talking to people generally, so I don't do any, you know, research and I'm like afraid of ever having to do something like an IRB. Um, but so all I can do is like rely on the very unreliable anecdote. But my sense is that it provides a kind of um, possibility of what could be um, if it wasn't all motivated by competition and, and you know, winning. Uh, yeah, I think that that brings us to really one final question or a set of questions we wanted to think through with you as well, because, I mean, this this nature of competition and these colonial histories, you know, super saturate everything. And one of the reasons I think both of us were drawn to your work is is that it's at the intersections of cultural studies, of food studies, of Asian American studies. And you really brilliantly speak to ideas around disciplinarity and what it might mean to be undisciplined in, in an essay of yours uh, called Unhoming Asian American Studies. And I was hoping that you could maybe talk a little bit about that because in some ways, right, it speaks to the potentiality of this space as Robin DJ Kelly might say, to be in but not of the university, right? And what it is that you mean to be undisciplined. I was hoping you could leave us on a note of hope but not, to, not a cruel optimism, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I have to sort of preface this that, you know, I get to reflect on these things because I have tenure and, you know, um, all that good stuff. But I think undisciplining, when I wrote the article, I was thinking about how we have to think about undisciplining um, in, in sort of a moment of austerity in the neoliberal university, right? Uh, I think of like many of us who were hired, often with the promise of building ethnic studies programs, right? Um, and over time, those promises kind of vanished, right? Um, because programs weren't revenue generating. Um, and so I kept thinking and, you know, and, and kept thinking about like, well, how do we keep doing this work in the absence of structure and support, right? And, um, um, you know, can you do Asian American studies without Asian American studies? And I was like, well, I kind of always had. And so, um, and I think it's kind of a little bit, you know, what academics of color have always done, right, um, to some degree. And to me, the point has never been about, like, arrival, like, you know, just, like, having a home, like, you know, having X, Y, or Z in place. It doesn't guarantee that a kind of critique will flourish at the university, right? Because, you know, for example, often Asian American studies um, can be used as a way to say, hey, like, you know, to this to the business school, like, why don't you take our classes and learn about Asia and then go make money in Asia? And that's really not the point of what Asian American studies is. So maybe not having Asian American studies classes was actually a good thing because we weren't providing that structure to, to go be better capitalists. Um, and so having a major to me isn't always the point. And I think, I mean, it sends an important message, but it's also about pedagogy and mentoring and you know, for me, providing spaces for um, the next generation to have tools to think and read um, about intersectionality. And, you know, I kind of think I can kind of do that from anywhere. Like, I mean, I think there was a part of me that was like, I really want to have that 
thing called Asian American studies. And I do, but I know that it can't always happen. Um, and so that doesn't mean that the work stops and that it only happens at places that have that structure, right? Um, you know, I think I, I can teach a radical critique of gender or ethnic studies in children's literature um, as much as I can in my Asian American literature class, right? In fact, one could argue that it's even more important. Um, it's kind of how we approach the material. And I think, you know, we kind of have to do more of this. And, um, and you know, and I mean, I think more and more universities, right, are all professing commitments to DEI, but then they're also buckling to the pressure of getting rid of courses that, or we, we will see this, right, that are maligned because of this sort of misunderstanding of what critical race theory is. And so to me, sometimes I think sort of doing that kind of more like, I, I don't want to sort of like, overstate and say it's a kind of fugitive work, but like doing the kind of work quietly, but bringing the critique is often, sometimes there's there, there's a value to, to, to keeping things small sometimes. God, I mean, I don't want this to be used as an example, as a reason to not fund ethnic studies, but sometimes if it's not being funded and there is a commitment to diversity, um, doing that work in other places outside of uh, outside of disciplines and so undisciplining structures might be one way to do it um it's still something that i'm very much thinking about um and um i hope that kind of answers a little bit of, of what you were thinking about yeah absolutely i i think that's kind of a perfect note to leave it on here uh for us bringing it all the way from the kitchen in back into the academy here uh and vice versa so uh we want to say once again thank you so much uh, dr anita manir for being here with us today the new book is called intimate eating racialized spaces and radical futures uh that is out keep your eyes peeled for it watch this space as they say because it promises to be a really really fantastic book so anita we want to say once one more time thank you so much for being with us here on Reverb. It's been a real joy to talk to you. Oh, thank you. It's been lovely. It's so much fun to talk about food. <laughs> Absolutely. No, you, you will be our go-to guest if we have more food issues here. So, so we may, we may do it. We may do this again. <laughs> so, uh, it, we, if we need somebody to <clears throat> make food studies digestible to our audience, we will, uh, we, we will yeah. definitely be calling oh. on you. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I can't, I can't do it like you. Um, so. Oh my goodness. All right. Yep. So from all of us here at Reverb, uh, thank you so much for tuning in and we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Our show today was produced by Ben Williams and Alex Helberg with editing work by Alex. Reverb's co-producers at large are Calvin Pollock, Mike Loudenbach, and Sophie Watzak. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.